You're listening to Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this our regular February episode, episode number 43 of Socialist News and Views. In the second half of our show, we have two letters, one on the 34 Teamster strike and one on the farmer labor and Democratic parties. But first, we start with news. City Council demolition vote against EPNI 7-6 to is the title of an article on the Twin Cities DSA website on January 28th. By Ben R., the article says, quote, since 2014, the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute, EPNI, and community residents have hoped to use the site of the Roof Depot building to build an urban farm and neighborhood hub, end quote. But it says seven council members voted instead to demolish the building and construct a public works facility, which the article says shows, quote, how hollow their platitudes regarding equity in the city and concerns about environmental racism were, end quote. You can read more on TwinCitiesDSA.org. In response to the planned demolition of the rooftop depot, as well as continued sweeps and destruction of unhoused encampments and belongings in the city, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry was chased out of an event Tuesday, February 14th, for murdered Indigenous women, girls, boys, LGBTQI+, two-spirit and transgender relatives, the city and mayor even had the gall to conduct additional evictions at encampments during the event. Atlanta Police Foundation refuses to comply with zoning appeal in violation of county law is the title of an article on the Atlanta Press Collective website. It says, quote, in an email exchange provided to ACPC, Dave Wilkinson, president and CEO of the Atlanta Police Foundation, APF, informs the foundation's lawyer that APF plans to continue construction of Cop City in the Wilani Forest despite a recent appeal that stayed the use of the land disturbance permit, end quote. The article says this is in violation of DeKalb County law. Not mentioned in the article, but of course, this comes after the official police narrative of the circumstances of the murder of the forest defender Tortuguita has come into question after police body cam footage from the day in the forest near the site of the police shooting had audio of the police speculating that the Georgia State Trooper was shot by another officer in crossfire. You can read more on the protest, response to Cop City, the legal battle, and the murder of Tortuguita on AtlantaPressCollective.com. Norfolk Southern, the rail company responsible for the derailment and fire and toxic release in East Palestine, Ohio, has also been implicated in supporting Cop City in Atlanta. Defend the Atlanta Forest at Defend ATL Forest on Twitter wrote, 
quote, Norfolk Southern funds Cop City because enviro labor and safety disaster like what is happening in East Palestine, Ohio is daily reality. It doesn't have to be. Norfolk Southern will protect massive profits for investors at the expense of lives. They can't do that without police, end quote. Otis Grotewall has an article called Drive for Profits Leads to Fiery Trainwreck Toxins on Board posted on February 13th on Workers World. The article says the Norfolk Southern train was 9,300 feet long and weighed 18,000 tons and quotes Railroad Workers United saying it, quote, consisted of only three locomotives, 141 loads and nine empties, end quote. Grotewald then says, quote, the collision resulted in a pileup of 50 loaded freight cars. Flames rose to a height of 100 feet. What was most alarming is that 20 of those cars carried toxic hazardous material. Ten of those cars were involved in the accident. Five of them carried vinyl chloride, a colorless gas, which is associated with an increased risk of liver and other cancers, says the National Cancer Institute, end quote. You can read more on workers.org. One person who has discussed the concerns related to the toxic materials in this incident is Nick Drom, who you can find on TikTok and YouTube. Here's audio from Drom on the accident. Of the cars that crashed, five of them contained vinyl chloride. It's a monomer used to make PVC. The reporting on this has gotten vinyl chloride confused with polyvinyl chloride, the polymer made out of vinyl chloride. Now, the reason that this distinction is really important is vinyl chloride is very hazardous and very flammable. The other thing about vinyl chloride is that it boils at 8 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's shipped in its liquid form. Meaning that when these trains crashed and these started leaking, they weren't just leaking liquid, but they were spewing boiling gas. So vinyl chloride is really toxic. OSHA has the permissible limit of how much you can be exposed to it during an eight hour shift as a one ppm part per million average over eight hours. Now this crash in Ohio has five train cars. These kinds of tanker cars can carry between 25 and 33,000 gallons. Let's call it 250 to 250,000 pounds of vinyl chloride. That's per train car, five train cars. There's maybe a million pounds of this toxic chemical spilling into the ground and also boiling off into the air. But then it caught on fire. I think this is where the reporting is really bad because no one is mentioning what the byproduct of vinyl chloride burning is. Of the many byproducts of burning vinyl chloride, one of them is hydrogen chloride. Hydrogen chloride is really unstable and latches onto water like just water vapor in the atmosphere, and that turns into hydrochloric acid. So right now, government officials, officials from the railroad, both the governor of Pennsylvania and Ohio are calling burning off the million pounds of this stuff a success, but not mentioning that it means that we have hundreds of thousands of pounds of acid in the air, potentially. Now, ever since engineering school, I've studied a lot of industrial accidents. I just find it really fascinating. And organizations like the Chemical Safety Board, NTSB, and OSHA all have like really good reports available to the public. I think as a designer, it's really good to learn about mistakes. When looking at these kinds of industrial disasters across time, there are a couple things that are pretty universal across all of them. One, the responsible party in this case, Norfolk Southern Railway, always plays down the reality of the situation. Politicians also just repeat the same lines, and then news outlets just repeat the same. So all we are hearing is the responsible party's word. As death toll rises past 35,000, earthquake in Turkey and Syria, now one of the greatest disasters in the 21st century, is the title of an article on the World Socialist website. The article from February 12th by Patrick Martin says, quote, 
The twin earthquakes that devastated south-central Turkey and northern Syria last Monday have produced a disaster whose toll in death, destruction, and mass suffering is apocalyptic, end quote. The article says the Turkish government, quote, certainly bears responsibility for this catastrophe, end quote. It says that blame, though, must be laid with imperialist powers and, quote, above all, the United States, which has devastated the entire region in pursuit of global domination, end quote. You can read more on WSWS.org. And now we go to a musical break. This is folk musician Emmett Doyle. This was recorded on Friday, February 3rd at Ginkgo Coffee in St. Paul. And the audio is provided by Urban Cabin Studios. The link to their full video of this set is on the show notes. The song is called Bread and Butter to the tune of Bread and Roses. Here it is. I want to dedicate this song to uh, all, the labor, all the labor bureaucrats who make sure that our unions remain very focused on the most uh, bread and butter issues possible. And don't get distracted by any concerns like social justice or um, political responsibility or anything like that. As we go to the table, we'll bargain for your pay. But management prerogatives, we always shall obey. Because management's on the path. We're drinking at the other, and the bosses hear us sing bread and butter, bread and butter. We'll fight for health insurance, and we'll fight if you get a raise, but not for your schools or your housing, because we know our place. And on the shop floor, you will never hear us utter, for the bosses hear us singing, bread and butter, bread and butter. If dictators bust up unions, why should we even care? We'll make a deal to build the tanks they're driving over there Until our jobs get outsourced Once they cleared up all the clutter And the bosses hear us sing Bread and butter, bread and butter We've grown out of rabble-rousers We've grown out of We'll settle labor grievances with a golf game and a shrug. But pass out one more leaflet and we'll whack you with our putters. For the bosses hear us say, bread and butter, bread and butter. Hold tight to every contract. We'll fight for every worker as long as you're at work. But once you clock out, buddy, that's between you and the gutter, where the bosses hear us sing, bread and butter, bread and butter. 
now we're back. We have two letters from the Twin Cities. The first letter is a report from Meridel Lesur sent in 1934 and published in New Masses on August 7th, 1934, under the title Murder in Minneapolis. Marxist Internet Archive says in part the following of Lesur. Lived from 1900 to 1996, Meridel Lesur was the daughter of socialist feminist parents Marion Wharton and Alfred Lesur. She was raised in the Midwestern U.S. surrounded by radical farmers, populists, and the IWW. With the women's movement of the 70s, many of Lesur's works were given new life. Several published for the first time are reprinted. She continued writing progressive literature until close to her death in St. Paul at age 96. Here's her letter, which reports on the 1934 Teamster strike. Within the sound of a gunshot from where I'm writing, Chief of Police Johannes's gun squad is on call. Two blocks west, the military's massed under the dictatorship of Governor Olson, supplied and instructed in the use of machine guns, gas, vomit gas, and all the instruments for class war. Six blocks away in the center of the business district, in an old garage opposite a swanky clubhouse, where more money changes hands in a poker game than these men have ever seen, are the striking truckmen, now denied the right to picket, standing in a dark, swarming dive. But something further has been known in Minneapolis since the strikers on Tuesday buried their dead. Henry Ness, shot down by the Order of Johannes, stool and slave of the Citizens' Alliance, an organization of employers and fascist-minded middle class, backed by the two biggest banking interests in the Northwest, a vigilante organization in embryo. Henry Ness was shot down on Friday, July 20th, when Johannes fired into a squad of peaceful picketers who were barehanded, observing Father Haas's truce while negotiations were underway. Over 40 were blasted and turned into sieves by buckshot in the back. Again, it has been demonstrated that negotiation and arbitration are paid for by the blood of the workers, the muffling of the strike, and by giving time for the red herring, now rotten and decomposed, to be drawn across the trail. The Committee of Employers with lying ads in the papers, the Citizens Alliance, the Minneapolis Journal, have held Minneapolis in a barrage of lies so cunning, so deliberate, and so wholesale that the citizens of Minneapolis, to learn anything of the truth, have had to pass it by word of mouth and read it in the daily newspaper edited by the strikers themselves. These practiced liars have stated time after time after time that the strike was over. For answer, the pickets went out by the hundreds, tying up the trucking of the city. With one exception, the alliance between strikers and the Farmers' Holiday Associations, by which agreement the farmers bring in their goods unmolested directly to the consumers. They stated that 90% of their employees had never quit work. As answers, thousands massed at strike headquarters. The picket lines grew twice their former size. The unemployed councils swelled the lines. Words, words have barricaded the city, have been a cover for the bloody tactics of feudal capitalists. There were cries in the press about the small band of strikers who dared dictate who should use the streets, the insurgents who forced the policemen to shoot them down along with neutral citizens. There was a great hue and cry about this small band of insurgents. 
At any dinner table, you could hear graduates of Yale and Harvard, supposed repositories of 19th century culture, saying they themselves would arm and shoot these men down like rabbits who dared ask for bread. But when labor buried its dead, this was changed. To the amazement of the Minneapolis Journal, the Citizens Alliance, the banks, etc., 40,000 people marched behind that body of Henry Ness, father of four children. Thousands massed the sidewalks. The women's auxiliary of the strikers marched a block solid, four abreast, with their little children in the broiling heat, through 20 blocks in the heart of the city, tying up traffic for three hours. There were six blocks solid of marching overalled men. There were cars that took an hour and a half to pass, filled with men, women, children, workers. From office buildings, lead businessmen aghast. My God, they asked each other, who are these people? An official from the city hall tried to break that cortege and was repulsed with anger by the young pickets. You don't pass the cortege of labor, they said. Nobody breaks our funeral line, and nobody did. Labor gave its answer to the words of arbitration and negotiation. Following the refusal of the employers to accept the agreement of the labor board, which Governor Olson attempted to force upon the two contending forces, the city is under martial law. There are no signs of the employers agreeing to any settlement. Their attitude is barbaric, futile. Governor Olson said at the first, there would be no picketing and no convoying of trucks except by permit, which admits of wide interpretation. Picketing has stopped entirely under protest by the strikers. And at the same time, more and more trucks are being moved by permit of military. The militia patrols the streets, Young boys who are startled by their sudden duties. Two commanders have been asked to be relieved of their command, and it has been granted. Military courts are being set up. The employers are entrenching themselves bitterly. Amidst this stands the old garage of strike headquarters like a live coal on the dark streets, alive with its closely packed swarms of men. Cars drive slowly by. Big, splendid cars with furtive men and women looking out at them at the strikers. The windows of office buildings are filled with eyes. Everyone knows since that funeral that there is a live ominous force stirring beneath the city, a mass rising beneath them. This is the power which asks the withdrawal of the militia and calls general strike. On Black Friday, July 20th, Chief of Police Johannes, backed by the Citizens Alliance and the mayor, against the sentiments of the governor and Father Haas, fired into a bunch of pickets who were totally unarmed without even clubs or sticks. They fired from all sides into the men as they were picketing the market area in the truck driver's strike. Shooting with sawed-off shotguns, peppering them with buckshot like rabbits. The murder was deliberately planned. The strike was going peacefully. The Citizens Alliance and the Advisory Committee to the Employers, a high pressure on drawing down a good salary, wanted trouble and wanted to force the hand of the strikers. Johannes told his men they had shotguns and they knew what to do with them. The mayor said, you are not carrying those instruments for pleasure. 
Thursday, the day before the shooting, they deliberately tried to provoke strikers into stopping hospital trucks using a decoy truck. The drama was prepared beforehand, with cameramen and newspapermen present, and an extra was out almost before the event had happened. A convoy was present of 150 policemen with guns sticking out of every car. These to convoy a truck with 150 pounds of merchandise in it. But the strikers did not fall into the trap. The next day, railroads of armed cops were in the market area. Carloads of pickets matched carloads with them. By noon, the market was alive with pickets, sympathizers, cops with guns. It must be remembered that at this time, there was presumably a tentative truce while Father Haas was carrying on negotiations. However, the seriousness of arbitration, truces, negotiations as considered by the employers is shown in the Minneapolis strike as clearly as in the Toledo and San Francisco strikes. The employers never have any intention to arbitrate or negotiate. At two o'clock, this bevy of cops prepared to convoy a truck, which was obviously a decoy containing only a few boxes. And amidst a crowd of spectators, in a clearing and in the street, an action took place, which should be looked at, ignoring all the fine literature of negotiations. This action reveals the very real intention of the reactionary businessman, who had given over $50,000 to break the strike at any cost, before negotiations had even started. If this strike wins, they say, Minneapolis will be a closed shop. The employer's trucks started moving. The picket squad cars drove toward it. The two crashed in the middle of the street. A couple of blocks away, summer business was going on. Women were shopping. It was two o'clock. The men obeying the tentative truce, waiting for the tentative and poisonous and futile arbitration, were totally unarmed. They were barehanded, picketing peacefully. The police opened fire with sawed-off shotguns splaying a load of lead and not into the sidewalk or at the feet of the picketers, as the papers contended, but into the unprotected vitals of living men coming towards them with bare hands. When the strikers turned for cover, they shot them in the back. Henry Ness, who died, had 38 slugs in his body. He was shot in the chest as he turned for cover. He was shot again in the back. In the hot afternoon for five minutes, they fired point blank into the bodies of truckmen, most of them trying for cover. The street was littered with bodies. An old man on the sidewalk was seriously wounded. A young messenger boy was shot. Two men were lying in the picket's truck, had not even gotten out of the truck, which shows how quickly the police opened fire. Instantly from the picket lines in the face of this fire, which came from both sides of the street, and from the center, young pickets rushed forward to pick up their wounded, and they were fired upon. The pickets behind them came forward, unarmed men without compulsion, without orders, advancing again and again in a colossal tide that filled the gap the instant it was opened by a prone man. The strikers picked up what wounded they could and took them not to the hospital, but to their own headquarters where they had set up their own hospital. What wounded men the police picked up were instantly arrested for violence. A great many of these men were veterans and remarked that even in the war, 
they were allowed to pick up their own wounded. The wounds from buckshot are most ghastly. One shot splays and splinters the bones instead of penetrating cleanly and opens the body in a dozen places like a sieve. One day after the burial of the murdered men, the following communication was sent by the Employers Advisory Committee to Governor Olson. All Minneapolis business firms are endeavoring to carry on their normal and lawful business, keep thousands of employees at work, and preserve and maintain industry in this community. The Truck Drivers Union, local number 574, has arrogantly assumed to control our streets, prevent operation of business, dictate what, if any, merchandise can be transported through our streets, and assume to block and shut off the streets to travel. The mayor and chief of police are doing their duty to uphold their oaths of office and to clear the streets. We are informed that you are endeavoring to have the mayor and chief of police cease aiding the transportation of merchandise through our streets. Such action only serves to uphold the hands of these law violators by compelling cessation of normal business and yielding to the determination of local number 574 to act as the official arbiter of what business shall be permitted to run in Minneapolis. Father Haas and the committee have submitted arbitration to both sides. Governor Olson waited until noon on Thursday, July 26th before declaring martial law. That's the letter. For an extensive dive into the 1934 Teamster strike, I recommend the book Teamster Rebellion by Farrell Dobbs and the great podcast 1934 Mills Eddie Revolt by Kelly Cable. One person who was influenced by the Teamster strike was Grace Carlson, who wrote this next letter. Against the Current.org says of Carlson in a summary of her biography that she was a Catholic, a socialist, and a feminist. It says, quote, Educated in Catholic school, she was nurtured by a community where her father was a railroad worker, one uncle was a socialist, a supportive mother, and Irish nuns who opposed World War I, end quote. She was involved in the Farmer Labor Party and the Socialist Workers Party. She ran for Senate in 1940 and was arrested with 29 other Socialist Worker Party members in 1941. This letter discusses her opposition to participation in what she calls the war in Europe which the U.S. did enter in 1941 and would come to be called World War II. The DFL was officially created on April 15, 1944, with the merger of the Minnesota Democratic Party and the larger Farmer Labor Party. The letter was published in Socialist Appeal June 29th under the title Workers' Forum, First Effect of Minnesota Bloc with Democrats. Here it is. Editor. If any conscious Minnesota trade unionist was ever tempted to recommend a coalition between the Democratic and Farmer Labor Parties as a solution to the workers' political problems, he was certainly cured of this temptation if he attended the Olson Memorial Banquet on June 17th. The banquet held in honor of Minnesota's famous Farmer Labor Governor Floyd B. Olson, who died in 1936, was sponsored by the Railroad Brotherhoods, the Farmer Labor Association, and a large number of AFL and CIO, and the Democratic Party. 2,000 workers attended the Minneapolis banquet and other thousands of workers attended similar banquets in other parts of the state. The Democratic program, or lack of program, prevailed in the speeches made at the banquets. No proposal was made for a way out for the workers from the danger of involvement in another bloody war. Rather, each speaker, with the exception of Senator Burton K. Wheeler, emphasized his faith in Roosevelt's program for keeping us out of war. The only anti-Roosevelt, anti-war speech was made by farmer liberal Senator Wheeler. However, 
Even his mild attacks on the warmongers were wildly applauded by the workers who heard him. His very timid hint at the end of his speech that a new and great liberal anti-war party will be created unless they, the Democratic and Republican parties, bind themselves in unmistakable terms to a program of keeping the U.S. out of the European war brought the meeting to its feet. It should be recorded that the Stalinist stooge Elmer Benson also criticized the administration's war position and pleaded for a stand by the farmer laborites against the growing war hysteria. Although his speech was roundly applauded, very few farmer laborites except the Stalinists place any confidence in former Governor Benson as a consistent anti-war fighter. It is no secret to Minnesota workers that Elmer Benson is and was a Stalinist captive. Before the recent change in the Communist Party line, he was whooping it up for collective security and pleading with Roosevelt to place an embargo on the aggressors, etc., etc. If the Stalinists return to this position, Benson will again make an emotional demand for faith in our great leader, FDR. No, there was no speaker at the Olson banquet whom the workers could trust as a leader in the fight against war. Vince Day, John Devaney, Dewey Johnson, John McDonough, and even John Bosco, the president of the Minneapolis Central Labor Union, all swore their allegiance to President Roosevelt, the flag and country for which it stands. Old-line farmer laborites shook their heads and said they had never seen such a chauvinistic display at a farmer labor gathering. It is very clear that the coalition ticket of Democrats and farmer laborites planned for this fall state election has already wiped out the traditional anti-war position of the farmer labor movement, at least on the part of the present leaders of this movement. Rank-and-file delegates from the unions to the coming state convention of the Farmer Labor Party must try to write a bold, anti-war, anti-Roosevelt platform. If this fails, Minnesota workers will turn away from the Democratic Farmer Labor pro-war ticket this fall. Advanced workers must be on guard to keep this wave of anti-war feeling of disillusioned farmer labor rights away from the equally pro-war Republican Party and on the path of independent working-class action. Neither of the readers of our letters today wanted their names used. And that's our show. Thank you for listening. Solidarity. This has been another edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford.